Welcome to Menu Stories. I'm your host, Rebecca Goberstein. Today we get to meet Caleb Zegas, Executive Director of La Cocina, an incubator for women who are low-income residents who want to become food entrepreneurs. Graduates of the La Cocina program go on to run their own food carts, catering businesses, and even their own brick-and-mortar restaurants. La Cocina is located in the Mission District, which we've gotten to know well on Menu Stories, and its commercial kitchen facility sits along the residential tree-lined end of Folsom Street. The day I interviewed Caleb, I got to meet a few of the food entrepreneurs who are proudly making their creations in the kitchen. It's hard to capture the joy they clearly felt being part of La Cocina. Caleb not only shares what La Cocina does for our local food economy and each of its graduates, but also helps us understand why it's so important to ensure that diversity exists among our small business owners. Let's have a listen. Thanks for joining us. It's a pleasure. Thank you for having me. So can you share what La Cocina is in your own words? Sure. La Cocina is a nonprofit incubator kitchen. We work with low-income and immigrant women entrepreneurs who are launching, growing, and formalizing food businesses. We've been serving San Francisco's Mission District since 2005. We have 34 businesses that are in the incubator program, 20 that have graduated, and there are 12 brick-and-mortar locations of graduates around the Bay Area. That's great. What are some... What are some of the uh, organizations that have graduated or come out of there? Sure. We have businesses that do things like frozen toddler foods that are distributed nationally. That's peace of mind. We have baked goods and cookies uh, distributed nationally like Kika Streets and Claire Squares. And then we have some local restaurants like El Huarache Loco, La Luna Cupcakes, Saboreso Sur, Los Cilantros that you can find East Bay, South Bay, uh, North Bay, and San Francisco. That's great. It is. So why did you get involved with La Cocina, and how did that happen? I got really lucky with La Cocina. I moved to San Francisco in 2003 looking for some form of social justice work, and my background had been in the food industry, in the back of the house, in the front of the house, but I really really had no sense of what I was looking for, and I saw a posting for La Cocina on Craigslist, and it was an executive director posting, and I was 23 and had no experience, (laughs) and so I clearly applied for it. (laughs) And they, in retrospect, uh, viably ignored it, and I never heard back. And then I went down to the Women's Foundation of California, which were the original fiscal sponsors of the program, wearing my big fancy suit, and offered to volunteer. They said they'd be in touch, and they were never in touch. (laughs) And then it turned out that my cousin's elementary school friend, he was was in elementary school, his mother uh, had been hired to manage the kitchen, so I asked to meet her, and then she offered me an opportunity to come in and volunteer by opening the doors every morning at 6 a.m., and that's how I got started. So you worked your way up from being a volunteer. Yeah, I mean, I think that we get lots of people who come to La Cocina um, really excited to do good and to do good work, and I think that people underestimate the value of actually working uh, to do that good work, and I think it's like a, it's a pretty good way to approach doing the work you, you want to do. Yeah, just trying it out for free and see if you like it. Yeah, I mean, find work that supports you. I mean, you have to, everybody needs to make a living. So find work that supports you, that gives you the mental space to look for work you love and then learn how to do the work you love. So you mentioned that you had been in the food industry in the front and the back of the house and restaurants. Can you tell a little bit more about your background there? Yeah, I uh, in high school, I thought I wanted to be a chef. 
I found my way into this really wonderful restaurant in DC again through happenstance and mistakes and <laughs> ended up in the in the back of the house with them I told the chef there that I really wanted to be a chef and he told me it was a stupid idea and he ended up being right but we had wager- <laughs> we had wagered whether or not he was right and if he was right I would I would leave and then go to college and if he was wrong I would stay and then he'd pay for my culinary school so I did that for a while and, and then he was right and I left um, stupid and I, idea for you, it turns out, not because being a chef is a stupid I, idea. That's right. I mean, I think that his point was, as a chef and as somebody who had like dedicated his life and family to that, that it's a pretty shitty way to make a, a living. Uh, it's really difficult. There's a ton of challenges, and uh, the economics of the space are, are really difficult. So you really have to be engaged or interested in sort of a specific kind of career growth or a specific kind of family. And um, I, I, I loved his perspective. He loved what he was doing and it was great for his family. But I think if you ask a lot of chefs if they think that their children should be chefs, uh, they, they they may hesitate. Uh, it might have changed because I think the, the economy is different for cooks now. But um, at the time, it was, it was certainly really hard for him. So... Um, that, that was my background. I was a pretty mediocre cook when I did it. I loved doing it, but, but, but never, never got above mediocre. Um, but I think was pretty good at front of the house. So I did a lot of that here in San Francisco. I did that in Michigan. I did that in DC. Um, and that's what I was doing until 2010 here at the same time as working at La Cocina. And for those who don't know, back of the house is a fancy way of saying like yeah. dishwasher. Yeah, it's very, da- it's very, it's very Downton Abbey. <laughs> the back of the house are the people you don't see. They're the cooks and the dishwashers. Right. And the front of the house, the people you do see. Those are the servers, hosts, and bussers. Right, right. Yeah, and the more chefs that I talk to, it seems like more and more, it's more like an art career than anything else. And so you definitely have to love it. And it's very expressive, obviously. Um, but like any art career, it doesn't really pay that well. So that makes a lot of sense that that's not exactly a profession you go into for the money. Yeah, I mean, I think that for the large majority of people who work in the food industry, it, it it's a career of, of blue collar labor, which mm-hmm. I think that gets skewed by the popular vision of chefs as celebrities and I think those are very few and far between and I think that even those that are celebrities make the large majority of their money not through their cooking but through their celebrity status and I think that you can look pretty closely in San Francisco and you know the the problem with the fine art model for chefs is that they rely on patronage which is always an uncomfortable economic relationship for an artist so I think that artistry is one way to add value to the work that you do as a cook Um, But I think that inversely, as customers, we have an obligation to see laborers as in and of themselves valuable. And craft laborers in particular, people who dedicate their lives to a a craft of labor, um, to to earn that value uh, through through what it is that they share with you as a customer. And I, I wish that we as customers were more excited about that and didn't need to make it about art, but could really just make it about sharing moments and, and respecting the work that somebody's done. How do you see that manifesting differently than how it is today? Um, I think that at a lot of restaurants, the people that we love and admire are the chefs. And I think the chefs are great leaders, but I think that cooking is a team sport uh, at a restaurant. And I think that the the kitchen staff remain unseen laborers for the most part until they break out on their own. And I think that's pretty unfair. And I think that the chefs who are really amazing at what it is that they do still really struggle to find an economic model that gives them autonomy and comfort. 
because of how we value food and because of how we value our investments and because of what we expect out of our investments, particularly in San Francisco. And I think that economic model is, is difficult. How old were you when you first got involved in the back of the house? I was either 16 or 17 years old, and I had been connected to this chef in D.C. who was way ahead of his time in the late 90s doing you know, back backdoor deliveries at 6 a.m. from local farmers and a f- set menu um, that changed every day. It was just really different. And he and his wife ran the back of the house and his brother-in-law ran the front of the house. And I went in to do like an informational interview and they offered me a job and I took it. And then I started the job and a week later they admitted that they had mistakenly hired me thinking, <laughs> thinking that uh, somebody with culinary experience had come in the door because that's who they had an appointment with and they'd forgotten to put me on the calendar. So that worked out really well. I mean, they're, you know, they're lifetime friends. And, uh, but working in a kitchen at that age was like a revelation to me in particular in DC, which is a really segmented place. You know, it's, Mm -hmm. it's racially divided or was that still is, but definitely was in the nineties where everything's sort of black and white. And they were white folks running a high end restaurant in a historically black neighborhood and really conscious of that and had a staff full of people from that neighborhood, which was really a juxtaposition for what most of the restaurants in D.C. do. And I loved working in the kitchen. It was the best part. Everybody in the kitchen was in it together. We'd listen to NPR and argue about race and politics for eight hours. And then dinner service would start and everybody would shut up and work. And then when you're done with dinner service, you keep fighting. And it, w- <laughs> it was awesome. But you realize in that in that moment that th- a lot of people who work in the kitchen, that that's it, right? That's where... That, that job has a, has a real ceiling to it. And uh, it's kind of difficult to be in a place that you love like that, that has a real ceiling of opportunity while you're bringing really beautiful, well-composed, perfectly cooked plates that cost like $30 a head to customers who don't know that or, or may not care. It sounds like that was a huge inspiration then for you. I mean, that's pretty related to what you guys are doing with La Cocina and trying to bring autonomy to the underserved community. What are you guys doing that is trying to remove that ceiling for people from minority communities or lower socioeconomic status communities? Yeah, I think the point where La Cocina picks up from from that original sentiment is the sense that some of the most talented people in most kitchens are not always the chefs and or the or the owners of the places and that the limitation to opening and running a successful food business often has nothing to do with the food you make but rather your capacity to run a manager business it's a business and i think that's reasonable so la cocina picks up at the point where where the assumption that opportunity is equitable in this industry falls apart And that's when you see who is opening businesses, how they open businesses, how Mm -hmm. capitalized they are when they open those businesses, what their chances of success are, and what the perception of their businesses are in the marketplace. And we try to take all of that with our experience of fine dining and our experience of successful food businesses and give those talented entrepreneurs access to the resources that I would otherwise naturally have access to so that we can really say, actually, if, if this was all equitable, this is m- what your food landscape would look like. Um, and I think that those businesses from La Cocina then become this sort of horizon of potential. And I think they're all superstars in their own right, but the collective power of those 12 brick and mortars or the 20 graduates is to say, 
this is what equitable opportunity creates. And civic investments in equitable opportunity or commercial understanding of lack of equity or the general population's investment in and demand for equity will produce results that are real and significant. So can you talk a little bit more about um, what that looks like in in reality? So for this community, San Francisco is obviously a very wealthy city. So why is it important for the general community to support these kinds of equitable opportunities? Yeah, I mean, I, I grew up in a city. I'm a product of an urban public school environment and chose to move to San Francisco because I can't imagine living anywhere but a city. And I really love the urban experience because in its density and in its variation of spaces has for the last 50 years at least provided different kinds of opportunities for people across different kinds of places. And I think that the concern that I have now looking at the landscape is that as it gets more and more expensive to live and work and own and operate in urban spaces, not just San Francisco, but but everywhere, you, you begin to lose the vibrancy and inclusivity that makes a city important. And you're going to start to find that vibrancy. You've already started to find that vibrancy in the suburbs, in the rings around cities. But the problem with that, besides how unfair it is, is that urban density is like a real innovation tool, right? It's like a, it's a, an equivalent of Silicon Valley or it's an equivalent of some kind of a hub in that it brings people together, forces them to compete against each other and work. And you get these really innovative solutions, which have bubbled up from the lower classes in cities pop-ups, stuff like that. Those are all things that people have born out of necessity and now have become cool things. Mm -hmm. And I think that if we as a city, and I really do believe in civic investment and taxpayer dollars and government infrastructure, or if we as a customer base, and I think you have to drive it all by demand. If there's no demand, there's no political will. If there's no demand, there's no capital. I have to say that, that that's a value, that being able to walk down Market Street is only as cool as Market Street is. And if all of the businesses that front the new companies in these beautiful old buildings on Market Street look and feel and taste the same, then you've lost the whole reason you invested millions of dollars in those buildings in the first place. Thanks for unpacking that a little more. That sounds like an important warning for us to keep in mind. So I saw that you spent some time in Michigan. I don't know if you know, but I'm a fellow Michigan Wolverine. All right. And so I know that Ann Arbor has a ton of really cool food entrepreneurship and is hugely connected to the local food community. So how has that, I see you smiling, <laughs> how has that influenced uh, what you've brought to La Cocina? Uh, two of the jobs that I didn't get in Ann Arbor uh, were Zanzibar, which is the restaurant right. where Gabrielle Hamilton from Prune came up, and uh, Zingerman's, which is this now national icon for uh, food businesses. So, Miss uh, Zingerman's. <laughs> yeah, you know, you can you can mail order it. I'm sure I'm sure they would love that. So, I, I you know, the jobs I didn't get put me in a place where I got to work at this really wonderful local market, which is right across the street from Zingerman's, which is called Sparrow Meat Market. And he was just the best small business owner I've ever met. He knew all of his customers' names. He was amazing. And uh, I stayed well-fed. I used to live across the street from there. Oh, and I awesome. shopped there all the time cool. on my 
poor student budget, but I still spent the money on the meat there. Awesome. Yeah, I mean, he was one of the <laughs> entrepreneurs that, that showed me that if you take the time to know your customer's first and last name and their kids and what they study, they'll, they'll be willing to pay more per pound for food. Yep. And uh, that is a not a rational economic theory, but it's very true. I mean, his business was based on the fact that he was always there and that he knew your name. And he probably knew what you wanted to cook for dinner and he could tell you how to do it. And it was awesome. It was really cool to see. So that, that was my, my Michigan experience. You know, I, one of the big reasons that I ended up at Michigan is because DC has no state school. So, you know, (laughs) if anybody else feels like getting politically motivated, they could, they could work on getting the 750,000 residents of DC some voting rights. And so that state school was available. And I, and I loved it. I loved how big it was. I loved the, d- the diversity of student experiences. Um, I really believe in a public education. So um, it, it was great, but it was cold and, <laughs> and in the Midwest. And there are certain things I learned about that experience that have brought me out here to California. <laughs> Not to knock the Midwest. I love it. I also think that Detroit has cooler things happening in food now than almost anywhere else. Like I think that the Eastern Market Project is really amazing. I think that what they're trying and thinking about doing with that urban space is really, really important. So I I think a lot of that has changed. I think back then it was really difficult to, outside of Zingerman's, to consider food there. Um, It just wasn't a a part of the sort of daily lexicon. So I I think it's really cool right now. In the general Detroit area, specifically in urban Detroit, in, in city center Detroit, where they're trying to figure out what to do with these large tracts of land that are only sort of sparsely residenced. Yeah, no, definitely. And there's there's a lot of really interesting kind of urban development happening there. And food is absolutely a part of that, I know. So what are some events that La Cocina puts on and how can people in the community actually get involved and support the efforts that you guys are doing? Yeah, so I mean, I think the most important thing for us is that La Cocina is like a facilitator or a middleman for these currently 54 amazing businesses. And I think it's really easy to engage with La Cocina, and that's wonderful, and that's why we're here. But it, t- it takes a little bit more work and investment to engage with the businesses themselves, but that's where the real value is. And so La Cocina is like a symbol of these values, but, but the real value lies in going to Alemany Market and trying the foods from El Huarache Loco or Sabores Sur or Estrita Snacks or going to the Civic Center Market and trying them there or going to the Ferry Building and trying some of the products from La Cocina businesses. And, you know, we, we host events as a way to create access to market opportunities for our clients. The main point of those events is that you get to try the food of the clients. The biggest, the signature event is, is every August, uh, this year, August 14th, 15th, and 16th at Pier 70, which is a San Francisco street food festival. And you can find nearly all of our, our program participants out there selling food. Uh, and that's really wonderful. Free to enter sfstreetfoodfest.com. And then on a weekly basis, you can find anywhere close to 20 of our businesses per week selling somewhere. Uh, again, brick-and-mortar restaurants in Berkeley, Oakland, Walnut Creek, San Francisco, Larkspur. Um, you know, catering available from all of those clients, farmer's market stands around the Bay Area. And just really working a little bit harder as consumers to support the businesses that we want so that we can create the kind of city we, we want to live in. And what's your goal with La Cocina? What are you guys trying to achieve over the next 10 years? I think that we would like to continue to prove that investments in equal opportunity and inclusivity are a value worth investing in for cities and customers. And I think that's particularly 
important right now as those values, I think, are being pretty aggressively questioned um, with a lot of free market thinking about what will be best for the city. And I think that it's short-sighted on the part of the free market thinkers. And I hope that La Cocina can stand symbolically in, in opposition to that and then literally put some really exciting businesses into places where people don't expect to find them and make people question why there aren't more of those. Why do you think they're being short-sighted? I think that there is a legitimate value to inclusivity. And I think particularly in cities that investing in inclusivity is important for the sake of innovation and, and ideas. If you move towards a homogenous economy, you will stop getting good ideas. And for an innovation economy to not acknowledge that is particularly like hubristic, in my opinion. And I, I think that it does disservice to the visions that they have because it is such a relatively insignificant investment to create those spaces and believe in those spaces. And not in, and in my opinion, it, it serves their business as well. You know, so it feels like a pretty typical business school proposal that you're, you know, if you all think the same way, your ship will probably sink because nobody will realize that it's sinking because you all think the same way. So it feels like a pretty safe bet to say we're going to set aside this amount of money and time to make sure that the, the ship we're building is going to continue to be the ship we want it to be. Without going into specific examples, sure. can you just just for the people who might be listening who aren't really familiar with the food and restaurant world of San Francisco, what's what's an example of something that's not inclusive versus something that is? Yeah, I mean, I think I'll just speak to the economic model. The way that a general commercial retail economic model works is that there are short and long-term leases that are managed by property owners. So in a city, when those property values go up, the landlord is incentivized to maximize the return on their ground floor retail, which means the price per square foot for that ground floor retail goes up accordingly. What's currently driving that ground floor retail price in San Francisco are new businesses, and those new businesses do bring with them lots of benefits like customers and demand, but they are unrelated to how the building owners make decisions about retail, which means that you're only going to get people who can pay the most per square foot for that retail space. And again, because there's like this little mini boom, all of the associated services get more expensive per square foot because there's so much demand for them. That's, that's your free market working like people say it does. What doesn't necessarily work is there's not enough supply that can be created to make it so that that marketplace returns to normalcy. So you're working at the far end of a curve for the entire time. And so it means that a lot of restaurateurs will make bad decisions about where to go because it's the only place that they can go. And then they'll be stuck with a long-term lease that they can't afford. And, you know, I think that there's policy solutions to that that are unexciting to a lot of people who don't believe in civic intervention. But I do think there are private industry solutions to that that would serve private industry really well while also creating civic infrastructure that would serve the city really well. And I, I just don't think we have a habit, culture, or custom of companies thinking about themselves as citizens. And I think that's short-sighted. Thank you for that. Yeah. 
Are there any other cities that you look to as a model example that have done this well? I don't think I know enough about that yet. I feel sort of caught off guard by the change in San Francisco over the last couple of years. And I think just will admit caught off guard by the change in cities over the last 10 years. I mean, if you had asked me when I moved to San Francisco, if I thought that people would start moving into cities uh, at the rate that they have, I, I, I didn't see it happening. You know, I think that what Tony Shea is doing in Las Vegas. I think that's his last name, the Zappos guy. Mm -hmm. I think that's really cool to think about. I don't know if it's going to work, but I think it's really cool to think about. That's legitimate civic investment on the on the part of a of a private investor trying to make equitable opportunity and to reinvent a space. So I think that's worth worth watching. I think that New York City tends to outpace us in innovations for equality. They're getting, you know, they're getting it handed to them themselves, but I think that they have a lot going on, like the Brooklyn Navy Yard, I think is a really cool project, which has civic investment and a mission to create these kinds of businesses. So I, I'd, I'd point to those two places. And, and I do think there are some developers in San Francisco and certainly the city government that, that want to see these things. But I, I do think that there's a real disconnect between what the city would like to see and, and what some of their policies support at the moment. So looking back at what you've been able to accomplish so far with La Cucina, what are you most proud of? Uh, the, the whole reason I work at La Cucina is because of the women who own these businesses. And any pride that I have about La Cucina is 100% driven by the successes of those women. So you know, going to Alamany Market, which is where we started a lot of this stuff, and seeing Veronica's family from El Huarache Loco still out there on a Saturday and Sunday morning, you know, and then being able to go to her restaurant in Marin and, and see them there too. Like, that's just a level of work and dedication that makes me feel like there's no way I could ever work hard enough because I don't leave this interview, go home, take care of three kids and have 22 employees and have it all on the line for them. And we have 50 businesses that do that every day. And that they are able to take those risks and succeed occasionally is, is probably the greatest point of pride. That's great. Yeah. Well, thank you so much for taking the time. Hell yeah. It was awesome to get to know you in La Cocina. Thank you. So we'll look forward to August. SFStreetFoodFest.com. SFStreetFoodFest.com. No worries. August, <laughs> August 15th to 17th. Our website, La Cocina, has a ton of information about the events we do. We do much smaller events. There's some kind of event every week. Uh, Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, all that stuff. La Cocina SF, like San Francisco.org. La Cocina SF.org. Okay. Yeah. Awesome. Well, thank cool. you so much. Thank you so much. So let's all go and support the female food entrepreneurs that come through the La Cocina Incubator Kitchen by attending SF Street Food Fest August 15th and 16th. Go to lacocinasf.org for more information about this and other La Cocina events in the area. By the way, August is looking to be the best month ever. Outside Lands is August 7th and 8th in Golden Gate Park which also has its share of delicious local street food vendors. SF Street Food Fest, August 15th and 16th in the Dog Patch. And Eat Drink SF, August 20th through 23rd at Fort Mason in the Marina. I hope you're not planning on dieting in August. On the next episode of Menu Stories, we meet the woman behind San Francisco's little piece of New Orleans, the maker of the legendary beignets, and one of the nicest people I've ever met, Chef Brenda Buenviaje of Brenda's French Soul Food in the Tenderloin. Subscribe to Menu Stories on menustories.com and find our podcast on iTunes so you can be the first to hear her story. You can also find us on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram. Until next time, happy eating. <laughs>